elderly grandmother and her little grandson, whose face was uh, sprinkled with bright freckles, spent the day at the zoo. Lots of children were waiting in line to get their cheeks painted by a local artist who was decorating them with tiger paws. You've got so many freckles, there's no place to paint, a girl said to the little boy in line. Embarrassed little boy dropped his head. His grandmother knelt down next to him. I love your freckles. When I was a little girl, I always wanted freckles, she said, while while tracing her fingers across the child's cheek. Freckles are beautiful. The boy looked up. Really? Of course, said grandmother. Why, why, just name me one thing that's prettier than freckles. And the little boy thought for a moment, peered intensely into grandma's face, and softly whispered, wrinkles. You know, wrinkles happen, don't they? Come on, wrinkles happen, don't they? You know, I don't know about you, but I watch... A lot of Hallmark because I love to watch Hallmark with my wife. It's an accrued taste over time. And there are a lot of commercials that come on there on Hallmark about how to take away the wrinkles. But no matter what they promise, they don't do that, do they? Why? Because as we age, change happens, doesn't it? No matter what you try to do, no matter how much you try to stop it, change happens. Now, the, the reality is I think some of us would have to be, be honest and would have to say, you know, we really don't like change. I mean, who of us likes change? Especially if we think that change is something that's not going to be for our benefit. It's not going to be beneficial to us. It's not going to be in favor for us. It's not going to be something that we're going to like, that we have evaluated, we have studied, we've looked at it, we've contemplated on it, we think this change is going to be good for me. And in spite of sometimes we have come to that conclusion it's going to be good for me, we still somehow are reluctant to change, but we embrace it a little bit quicker. But when we look at the change that we see coming and we sort of analyze that change, and in that analysis we conclude that that change is not of any benefit to us, it's not going to bless me or, or advance me, or I don't think it's something that I want, desire, or care for are going to help me. I do not want that change. And we will resist it and reject it and sometimes go to extreme lengths to prevent it like wrinkles. The disciples have had a lot of change in their lives up until now in Acts 1 verses 1 through 11. There's been a lot of things going on. We've already seen how Luke begins now to continue the explanation of the gospel in his second gospel letter, or the second account in Acts 1-11. through And You see, it's the same writer. It's Luke who's given us the gospel of Luke. Now he's writing the book of Acts and giving us sort of a, a second chapter or maybe a second book to his first book about the gospel to complete what he started. And the disciples in the analysis of 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 Dr. Luke has concluded that the disciples have undergone a lot of change. I mean, if you go back to the time in which they were minding their own business, tending their nets, fishing and 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 involved in 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 raising money for their own personal expenses of their family and their business and all that, Jesus invades their lives and brings change, doesn't he? He invites them to follow him. And they drop everything. They leave everything and they follow Christ. That's an incredible change. Then for over three years, he instructs them, he teaches them, he models for them how to do ministry and and, and helps them grow in their understanding. And they, they become, I believe, converted then to the reality, to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Son of God in whom they are to place their faith and trust in him. 
And that's a huge change because, you see, they were in an Old Testament paradigm, and now they are beginning to understand and embrace the New Testament concept of Jesus being in the flesh, the gospel incarnate. He's the gospel of Jesus, inseparable. A huge change for them. And they stake their lives on it. And now there has been a big change in the last part of Gospel of Luke where Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. And he does. He dies. And that's an incredible change. They are totally freaked out because Christ has abandoned them. He's been arrested. He's been tried. He's been sentenced. He's been hung on a cross. He physically, literally died. They placed his body in a tomb and they then sort of lost hope and everything changed. They didn't know what to do, but Christ didn't stay in the grave, did he? That was another change that he brought into their life. He rose from the dead, and that changed everything for them. That transformed their perception of Christ completely. It not only changed that, but it changed them completely because Jesus conquered death. Man, that's, that's incredible. Imagine the transformation that that brought into their faith and their personal lives as disciples of Jesus who have left everything to follow him. They have now been transformed by this incredible truth that Christ has defeated sin and he has risen from the dead. It was not all the change that Jesus was going to bring into their lives. There's more change than that. I can imagine the disciples at this point were wondering how much more change can we do and how much change is it going to bring and and what is it that he's going to bring in regard to that change. And Jesus, in the book of Acts, in the beginning opening part, in this this very small narrative, is beginning to prepare his disciples for even greater change. You see, he's only risen from the dead to appear to them for a short period of time to prepare them for more change. They're not understanding, they're not aware, they're not completely cognizant of all the transformation and the change that Jesus is going to bring into their lives. And that's why he comes back for 40 days. He takes 40 days in and out, talking to them, instructing them, modeling them, preparing them for the change that he's going to bring when he leaves. There's going to be a change. And that change is going to be a dynamic, powerful change in which they are going to not only not have him anymore, but they're going to have the presence and the power of the person of the Holy Spirit that's going to impact their lives and help facilitate the change that Christ is going to do in them and through them. Change is coming. And he's preparing them for change. Now, this relates to us, I think, as we begin a new year, because I believe that God in Christ, as we study the word and as we begin to move into the new year, throughout the new year, that I believe change is inevitable. And I believe change is something that he continues to want to bring into our lives. Change is not something that we read here just for the disciples, because if the Christian life is, in fact, a journey, a pilgrimage, a progression, then if it is a progression, then in that progression there should be a series of of moves, of, of understandings, of decisions in which those things ultimately bring about the change, the transformation that Christ wants to bring into our lives through the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid that many of us, if we're not careful, we learn to sort of camp out what we are because this is what's comfortable for us and this is where we decide to stay and and. This, this idea of moving from here, which, which is the comfort zone that I have, to moving over there into the unknown, this, this change that he wants to bring into my life, we often fear it and we often reject it because we don't really know where it's going to take and what it's going to cost 
what is involved in the change, the transformation that he wants to bring. If you're progressing, if you're on this journey of discipleship, 2017 is going to bring about some sort of change. And so we must prepare for that change that he wants to bring into our lives like Jesus was preparing his disciples for change. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, and let's look very quickly at seven steps that I think Jesus is using in order to prepare his disciples for change. How do we prepare for change? Number one, we prepare for change by by listening carefully. You need to listen carefully for the instructions of Christ because if we don't listen carefully to what he is instructing us, what he is applying to us, what he's moving us toward, we will miss out on the change, the transformation that God wants to bring. Verse 1, in the first book, which is the book, the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, who in the world is Theophilus? No one knows. Is he imaginary? Is he real? We don't know. His name simply means friend of God. But Theophilus is the one in which he wrote the first book. Now he's writing the second book, maybe to all of us who are friends in Christ. But he said, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given the commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice it says that he has already identified, already given clear instruction in regard to what Jesus taught and what he modeled for his disciples in his first gospel account. But he's now saying that until the day he left, notice that he is doing the same thing. But notice the difference in the change in the the word that he uses. Before, earlier, he uses the word teach and do. Now he uses the word commands. And the word commands here, after his resurrection, prior to his ascension, Jesus is commanding now through the Holy Spirit. The word command is a different command. It it says that Jesus is, is now one of even greater authority than before. Can you imagine having placed your faith and trust in Jesus prior to the resurrection and now after the resurrection confirming the validity of the truth that Jesus is who you thought he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. He's the one. We watched him die. We saw him put in a grave. We ran to the grave and it was empty. We heard about reports and now he has transfigured himself in our breath. He is there. We can touch him and feel him and he eats with us and he talks with us and he even laughs with us. So now this one who is Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, is commanding. He is one of authority, and he is now commanding them. He's giving them even further instructions how through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting in Acts, he's preparing us now for this incredible manifestation of the person of of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Jesus operated under and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. He operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he is about to help his disciples understand that in his absence, they, like him, will now be given the person of the Holy Spirit, and he will now empower them to do the things that he did. I mean, you know, we saw earlier, uh, several months back, maybe a, a couple of years back, greater things than these shall you do, he said to his disciples. How are they to do greater things than what Christ did? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus did these things through the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, he said, the Father and I are one. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is in 
in, in the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in him. The, tri, the triune God is never separated, even though Christ was in the flesh. He was still fully God, fully God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Don't ask me how to explain all that. I can't. It makes no sense to me, but he operated on the fullness of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, worked through him to the apostles whom he had chosen. He had chosen these apostles. He had handpicked them for his special purpose to fulfill a, a great commission that he would use them. And now he is saying to them, listen carefully in these next 40 days to these instructions, because they are critical. They are critical to your understanding. There's further instruction that you need. I think sometimes we, we don't go with God and experience the new things that God wants to bring into our lives or the change or the transformation that he wants to do in our lives is because we somehow are stuck with what we think we know. But God is saying to us to be open now, to listen to these instructions through his word that never returns void in the applications of these truths that he's going to communicate to us in 2017 as you open the word, as you study his, his word, as you listen to his spirit, as he leads you, listen carefully because if we are not careful and we don't listen carefully, we will miss out on what God wants to do in and through us. You can't go where you don't know where you're going. He can't lead you if you don't know where he's leading you. The problem is that most of the time we are so busy with so much noise in our world. We had a lady who lived next door to us. It was, her name was Diddy. She was Patty's grandmother. And it seemed like 24-7 that television was on the whole time. She was lonely and it kept her company. Aren't there a lot of noises around you? The television, the telephone the cell phone, the iPhone, whatever phone you use, the radio, the music. I mean, there's, there's so much distraction and distortion that sometimes it's hard if we're not careful to, to hone in on, into the small, the still small voice of God that wants to communicate into our lives, to grab our attention and to, to speak specifically to us saying, you're here, but I, I want you to understand I want you here. The fact is, I think that most of us probably know where we need to be already. <laughs> Isn't that true? We already know so many things about our lives that, that are not right with God and where we already need to change, so why should we listen to more? I used to have a saying when I was in, in student ministry. I say to students, you know, sometimes I think you already know what you need to do. Why do I need to stand up here and tell you what to do? Because God's already told you, just do it. Somehow we, we sit and listen for someone else to tell us what we already know God has spoken into our lives to do. We must listen carefully to what he has for us. And he is instructing his disciples. He is taking the time for 40 days to speak into their lives. And, I, and I'm praying that he'll speak into your life in 2017 as he begins to bring about the change in the coming year that he wants to bring into your life, into our life as a church. Number two, we need to see clearly. Notice verse 2, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's interesting, notice in the passage, he, he, he proves his power to them, the power that he 
himself has defeated sin and death. He presented himself, how? Alive. He was alive. He was physically alive to them after his suffering. By many proofs, proofs that were factual, that were legal standing facts that said, I am not dead, I am alive. I was once dead, completely, fully dead, but now I am completely, fully alive. Many proofs. There was no question in regard to, is this the Jesus? Is he alive? They knew he was alive, and they saw clearly the power of Jesus to conquer sin and death. Why was that important for them to see that clearly? Because they would be tempted as well. I mean, Simon Peter had already been tempted to deny Jesus three times. Disciples were, were, were going to be left and they were going to be without the presence of Jesus, but they were going to be given the, the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. He is not just a spirit, but he is a spirit that leads to holiness. And he knew that his disciples, once they came to faith in Christ, Sin was defeated, but we can still sin. And that's why Paul said, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, even as disciples, we can still sin. But yet, his spirit comes into our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will lead us in the victory of having power over sin in our lives. To enable us and empower us to walk holy. Notice also appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He not only wanted to see clear the power that he had, but the purpose that he came to establish, which is to establish his kingdom. That's why he was sent. That's why he selected them. That's why he poured his life into them. That's why he modeled ministry to them. He was, he was helping them understand that there's, there's a reason why he came. Yes, it was to take upon himself our sin against God and die in our place on a cross so that through faith in him we might have abundant and eternal life. But there's something greater than that. He came to establish a kingdom. We saw last week that that kingdom is established through, I believe, his church. A kingdom. Not a kingdom of brick and mortar and not a kingdom of lights and all of this stuff, but a kingdom in which he would reign and rule in the hearts and the lives of men and women and boys and girls who would place their faith and trust in him as their savior and as their Lord. To be enthroned on the hearts of those who would place their faith and trust in him to set up his kingdom. He wanted to give them a clear-cut vision as to what he wanted them to do, where he wanted them to go, what he wanted them to become, to have power over sin and to then be intentionally with the purpose of establishing his kingdom. Guys, this is the direction. I want you to see clearly where you are heading. And their mandate, their mission is ours. Victory over sin and the establishment of his kingdom, if we are his disciples. We need to see clearly the purpose and the power of Christ manifest through the Spirit and the person of Christ in our lives so that we then are seeking to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, why we exist on this planet. We are not here just to live for ourselves, but we need to take the focus, we need to take our eyes out of the mirror and stop reflecting this image of a flawed human being and place them on Jesus so that we then, once we put our eyes on Christ, focused on him, are then set to accomplish the purpose for which we too were called by Christ 
and placed on this journey called discipleship so that we might know personally the power over sin that Christ came to conquer, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others, so that him, him through us can then establish his kingdom to see clearly. Sometimes we don't see clearly. I was at my mom and dad's house over the holidays, and they both have cataract problems, and they need to have that surgery. You ever had that? Ever know anybody to have that? How clearly do you see? Not too well when you don't, when you have the problem in your eye, right? When you have the, the fogginess there. Mom was trying to light a candle that, when we were there, and she was about four or five inches in front of it trying to light it because she couldn't see clearly where it was. Sometimes I think our vision, our focus is unclear. And in 2017, as we unfold the, 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 the discipleship process and this initiative uh, in, in the later months, I hope that you'll have more clarity, more insight, a better vision, a, more, a better understanding as to why you were placed on this planet and what God's purpose is through your life. See that clearly and to embrace the change that God wants to bring into your life once you are focused correctly and you identify where he's leading you so that as you go there, you'll understand the purpose and the intent that God has for your life. Number three, we need to wait expectantly. If we're going to prepare for the future, we need to wait expectantly. In other words, we need to wait where he leads. But as he leads us, when once we get there, we need to expect to receive what he says we're going to receive. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. It's interesting, while they are there, they are staying there together, a time in which they are together, Jesus, as you may not know, or you may know, these 40 days, he didn't stay with them continually. He came and he went, and he came and he went. And um, they were stationed somewhere in Jerusalem in the beginning, but they too came and went from Jerusalem. I can't imagine a disciple uh, not know, you know, knowing that Christ is going to be in this location wouldn't stay there continuously. Can you? I can't imagine that, but for whatever reason, they would, they would leave and come back and leave and come back. And Jesus himself would leave and go back and leave and go back, which is one of the reasons why we know in Scripture that, that when he came the first time, Thomas wasn't there. And when Jesus left, Thomas came in and said, hey, we've seen Jesus. And he said, no, I haven't seen him until I touch him and see him and feel him myself. You know, and so Thomas didn't leave and Jesus came back. So there was a lot of that going on. And so in one of those times while, they were, while Jesus was staying with them, Notice he orders them not to depart from Jerusalem. Don't, don't keep leaving and coming back, but stay put. Don't leave and come back. Stay here, and there's a reason for that. I want you to wait on the promise of the Father. The promise is from the Father, and the promise is that of the Holy Spirit. Because he says you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to, I want you to hold on to that because we're going to come back to this and in maybe next Sunday or a couple of Sundays. I've been wrestling with where we're going Sunday to Sunday until we get to our 40-day uh, thing that we're going to be doing pretty soon. So uh, hang on, pastor, pastoral staff. I know it's kind of freaking, freaking you out a little bit because I don't have a complete direction, but we'll muddle through this somehow. But anyway, be baptized with the Holy Spirit in many days. How many is many? We know because we have the record it's 10 days later. They didn't know that. They're to wait. 
I mean, can you imagine the disciples at this point? They have, they have been disappointed because Jesus has died and they thought it was all over and then Jesus rose from the dead and they encountered him and now they're excited. Jesus conquered death. He overcame sin. He defeated Satan. He's alive. He's indestructible, man. We have a commander-in-chief, a savior, a Messiah who cannot be defeated even by death on a cross. Man, he rose from the dead. Let's go conquer the world. Let's go. They're ready. Super Bowl Sunday. And he says, wait a minute, guys. You're not quite ready yet. Hold your horses. Step back a minute. I want you to wait. I can't imagine it was probably pretty hard for them to wait. I don't know about you, but do you like waiting? Do you like waiting? Uh Uh-uh. Even if we go to a sit-down restaurant, not one of those fast food things that some of you are going to go. We don't like waiting for the stewardess more than five minutes to come and ask us, do we want water or tea? Really? What's wrong with the service in this place? And, you know, it's, it's not surprising then that we treat God like that. Hey, God, I've been waiting five minutes. Where are you? And he says, no, I want you to go wait there. They don't know how long they're going to have to wait. And these were more than likely the 10 longest days of their lives because they are waiting for the the promise of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And and they are told to wait. Wait, it's not time. The, The light has not gone green. And you have a hard time waiting for the light to turn green, don't you? Imagine sitting in a light in your car for 10 days. You would abandon the cause, wouldn't you? Turn around and go back home. Forget it. I'm not going. Life's never changing. And I know if I go through this red light, a police officer is going to give me a $200 ticket, and I'm not going to do that. Wait. But where? Wait in Jerusalem. There's a specific place they are to wait. They are to wait where he has led them. I think there's a lot of times we, we might be willing to wait, but we want to wait for the Lord where we want to wait, not where he has told us to wait for him. And unless we go where he has told us to go, and out of obedience to that, we go where he is instructed, we will miss what God wants to bring into our lives. We have got to go where he leads because where he leads is where he is. Now, don't get me wrong, God is everywhere all the time. But the promise is in Jerusalem. It's not in Judea. It's not in Bethany. It's not up where they were in their hideout before or their, their, their headquarters up near the Sea of Galilee. It's in Jerusalem. And they are to wait there. That's where they are to wait. And we must understand that as we wait expectantly for the promise that God is going to bring into our lives because he has instructed us what he's going to do. As we wait, we must be very careful to wait where he has told us to be. Number four, we need to trust completely while we wait. Number six says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of heaven? Or the kingdom of Israel. Now, he's been talking to them now for quite some time about this kingdom that he's going to establish. And I think they probably more than likely began to understand that it's a, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where Jesus, through the gospel, is going to reign in the hearts and the lives of men and women, and boys and girls, who are going to trust in him as their Savior and Lord. And, and they're, sort of, they're going to get that. But they begin then, maybe I think, maybe to understand that he's going to come back. You know, it's what we call today the second coming. Christ is going to return. 
And they know when he returns, he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign and rule on the throne in Jerusalem. We know that he's going to reign from the temple. But they don't want to know, when are you going to come back? And really and truly, that's what many of us still want to know today. And we've been asking that question for over 2,000 years. Jesus, we know you're coming back. But when are you coming back to establish your kingdom? When are you going to sit on a physical throne and take all our worldly troubles away? When are you going to become the president of the universe? When is going to be your inauguration day? But more than an inauguration day, it'll be a coronation day. So they ask him. And notice what he says in verse 7. He says to them, it is not for you to know times. Times. We have a hard time with time, don't we? In case you didn't know, we start the service at 1045. That's the time. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's 1045. Pastor Mark would love you to be here at 1045. But as long as you get here for the preaching, that's okay. I'm, I'm good with that. Just kidding. Let's keep it a little light in here, okay? The time, the activity, or the season, the occasion that the Father, notice the Father, the Father God, God the, 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 the primary, the number one, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Father, the Father has fixed. He has, he has fixed conclusively. He has already predetermined. It's already planned. He has already put it on his calendar. It's already where it's supposed to be. He and he alone is the one who knows by his own authority. He is the sovereign Lord of lords and king of kings. He being the God has already said it. So you need to just trust the Father in his time. He will bring it to pass. We have a hard time with trust. God, when, when is this day going to come? When is our victory going to happen? When is our triumph going to become reality? When is Jesus going to return? I, and, and, and in this pilgrimage, in this, this progression, and, and all that he's, he's bringing us to do, and all of this change, and all this, this cost, and all this transformation, and all the pain, and the heartache, and the difficulty, and the, the struggle with sin, and all of the things, when is he coming? And, and, and if we're not careful, we lose heart. We get tired and discouraged because he's not coming. I can remember when I was a child, I don't know why the preachers at that time when I was a kid used to think he was coming tomorrow, but they did. You remember those days? Some of you are old enough to remember that. How many were in church? You remember those days? Come on, you remember those days? I mean, you listen to those guys and they thought he was coming any minute before the guy ended the sermon, he was coming, right? You better get ready. And there was an urgency about the invitation. We all ran down there to get ready because he may be coming morning, noon, or night, evening, whatever that song says. I can't remember the words of it right now, but maybe evening, maybe soon, something like that. Eh, you know, whatever. He's coming again, you know. Better get ready. That was the invitation song, man. You went ran down there because he was coming. You, know, you talked about in life group today, the 70 years that they had to wait and how through the 70 years of that generation, remember, the generation somehow lost sight of what God had promised. And what we, if we're not careful, we'll lose sight of this incredible promise that was made thousands of years ago 
that he is coming again. We think, well, you know, I asked Patty to, when we were talking about the lesson coming down, what if, what if in the, the, the second year into the 70 years, I got 68 years to get ready, man, I'm going to live it up. I mean, they had a 70, they knew 70 years. Do we know what time? Do we? Do we know the season? What if it's before we end this service today? Could happen. Won't we be surprised? How many of us will go and how many of us won't? Well, that'd be an eye-opener, wouldn't it? I thought Charles Shirley was going to make it, but I knew, I knew he wasn't quite there. Because some preachers are going to be left. Deacons will be left. Some pastors will be left. Church members will be left. But in the meantime, while we wait, we need to trust his timing. Number five, we need to rely exclusively. Notice the text in verse six, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Rely exclusively on the Spirit's power. There are two promises in this text, an empowerment for the mission. You will, that's a promise, you will what? Receive power. That word power means the power to influence. You'll have influential power, not human power, but supernatural power from God working through you to bring about an influence for the gospel of Christ when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's a preposition of location. He will come upon them. And you will be, notice the second promise, you will be my, my witnesses. A witness is somebody simply who has experienced something and they tell what they've experienced. They tell others who do not know what has happened bad. And we're going to come back to this, I think, later, but sort of dissect, what, what does this mean to be baptized in the Spirit and have the power of the Spirit? We're going to look, get a little bit, bit of Pentecostal here, so turn to your neighbor and say, you don't want to miss and see what the preacher has to say about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, because we're going to talk a little bit about that. You might be surprised what I may say, so buckle up. But Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my, what does it say? Spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The reason why some of us are not seeing the transformation and the change that he wants to bring into our lives is because we are relying too much on our power, not on his power. You can't do it without him. Sure, you have to yield to him. You have to surrender to him, but he does it in and through you, right? I mean, if he's going to reach a lost world that doesn't know Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, because it is the Spirit, according to John, is there 14 or 15, that convicts of sin. Without the Spirit, there's no conviction of sin. And it is the Spirit who works through you to accomplish the purpose and the will of God in your life and through your life. Some of us are having a hard time with the change and the transformation that he wants to bring into our lives because we're not relying exclusively on the power outside of ourselves, meaning the Holy Spirit who resides in our hearts. We're relying upon our own power, and the transformation is just not happening. And frustration sets in. We throw in the towel, and we walk away, and we give up. How many do you know have done that? 
And how many times have you been tempted to do that? We can't love unless he loves through us. We can't obey unless he obeys through us. Number six, we need to live decisively. Notice the text, and when they, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine now they're on the Mount Olive, Olivet, the Mount of Olives, I'm sorry, and they're on the Mount of Olives there, and, and uh, all of a sudden Jesus is speaking these incredible words. They're to go in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and all of a sudden he just starts Beam me up, Scotty. You know? There he goes. And, and they're just like, notice, notice what they do. And while they were gazing at him, they were like, that's the idea. They were, they were locked in, man. I used to know an evangelist friend. He's still alive down in Oklahoma. He used to say, lock in every time he'd preach to people. He'd say, lock in. Because he wanted people to pay attention to what he was about to say. Lock in. These people were locked. Jesus didn't say, I have to say, lock in, man. They were like, they had never seen anybody like do that before. And they were, they were gazing at him into the heaven as he was disappearing. And, he, and, and as he went, behold, all of a sudden, somebody breaks the silence. There are two men who are standing in white robes, and they speak. There was not a motion, not a peep, not a sound. They were just like, Trying to spot him. You know what I'm saying? You've seen, have you let a balloon go up in the air and try to spot that balloon? And you know, thinking maybe they saw him. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, duh. Duh. That's what I want to say. Who of us have seen somebody just float up into the sky and disappear? No wonder they're looking up into the heavens. I mean, I know you're angels, guys, but, but we've never seen anything quite like that. You're used to it. You see it every day. But we, man, we're like, whoa. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come into the same way as you saw him go into the heaven. Notice what they're saying. He is going to return as he has just left. One of these days, the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together in the clouds and we will be forever with the Lord. In other words, guys, he's coming back. Live a decisive life. Live an obedient life. Live and do and act and, and work and witness and, and, and walk in the power of the Spirit because one day this Jesus who has left is going to come back. And, and the reason why we are willing to prepare for the change and when that change comes, we embrace the change because one of these days we know that the Jesus who's left, who has just left is going to return and we are going to stand in front of him giving an account of our life before him and he's going to say, what did you do with what I asked you to do? And we're going to have to give an account of that. He already knows, but we're going to have to give him accountability before him. And so we must live decisively for him. As we, number seven, obey immediately what he says us to do without delay. Notice the disciples, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. How far was this Mount Olivet? About half a mile, three quarters of a mile away. Have you ever been there or not? And the route from where they are to 
where Jerusalem was, was more than likely the quickest route, was coming down off the hill. It's not really a mountain. I don't know if you ever in Jerusalem, they call certain things mountains. They're not really mountains. They're not like the Rockies. They're, they're hills. <laughs> but it was just a couple of hundred feet above elevation of, of Jerusalem, and you could see over Jerusalem, and it's just maybe half a mile, three-quarters of a mile away, and you would come down the hill and into the Garden of Gethsemane and maybe in through one of the gates, the Dung Gate or the Lion Gate, into Jerusalem. You go through one of those gates, it wasn't very far, maybe, maybe 25 minutes of a walk. And, and so they're above, and they're looking down at Jerusalem. It's just a half a mile away. You can see it from there next to Bethany. I mean, there is Jerusalem, and, and all of a sudden, these 500 people are there, and Jesus is ascending to heaven. And they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, just as he asked them to do. If we are going to go with God and experience completely, totally, what he is wanting to do in and through our lives and bring about the change and the transformation that is going to be beneficial to us because it's going to, it's going to give us the victory and the power over, over our lives that we need and the abundant life over sin. And, and it's, going to, it's going to increase the kingdom that God wants to do in and through us as we are yielding to the person, the power of the Holy Spirit. He is working in and through us. We must obey immediately because he is, as I mentioned earlier, he is the Holy Spirit. When you have sin in your life, you cannot, you cannot, and you will not see the change, the transformation that God wants to bring into your life until you deal with that sin. And one of the greatest dangers I find in the church today is this. I can call myself a Christian and claim to have assurance of heaven live any way I want to, do anything I want to, anywhere I want to, with anyone I want to, whenever I want to. There are no limitations because God is not the God today that he was in the New Testament, and the standards that God set then are not the standards today. So therefore, the, the standards of what is right and wrong are up for grabs, and therefore, I don't really have to live an obedient life. And they're mistaken. And there are many who would say that someone who says that more than likely is not a born-again believer anyway. We can have a, a multiple-hour debate on that. But they obeyed. And if we're ever going to see and enjoy the transformation, the change that God wants to bring into our lives, there has to be immediate instantaneous obedience. I want to read one last scripture and I'm going to close very quickly. Just, just want to read it to you. It's on the screen above you. It says Hebrews, go to the next, is Philippians 3 there? Let's, let's just look at this. Save some time. Now that I have already obtained this or, I'm already or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice what he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is well aware of this, this huge reality. And if you think about Paul, he, he wrote, what, nearly three-fourths of the New Testament? What an incredible giant of the faith. The missionary journeys that he's been on and the, the 
people that he has encountered and the trials and the hardships and the victories and the salvations and, and, and the, the history that he's left for us but of the church and the founding of the church but also these beautiful scriptures that, that talk about how not to live in the flesh but live in the spirit and how to be, live the victorious life and all these wonderful he says in all of his experience, in all of his knowledge, in all of his progression, no matter, I mean, I don't think anybody, I would never ever say, hey, I'm equal to Paul. And I'm certainly not equal to Jesus. Can I get him into that? That's what I think. I mean, if I could just live up to Paul, maybe I, you know, Paul said, follow me because I'm following Christ. I would never say, follow me because I'm following Christ because Lord knows, follow me, you'd be in trouble. But he says, I've not yet arrived. There's more change that needs to happen in me. You know, the disciples think, I, I think they thought when Jesus was raised from the dead and, and he presented himself and they had those 40 days, I'm not sure they quite saw what happened in Acts 1 through 11, that he would soon leave. I, I thought maybe they, they thought they were invincible. This is it, man. We are ready. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. There's more coming. This is not, not, not all that I came to do. And I wonder, have you settled today? Unlike the Apostle Paul. Did you know what? I've not yet arrived. There's still more that he's found. There's still change that he wants to bring into my life. There's a transformation that still needs to take place. We need to prepare for that transformation. Pray with me.